Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk, Happy Hour Radio. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and more with your guide, Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Well, hello, Seattle. Hello, Peter Santa. Welcome to Happy Hour Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Chan, advanced sommelier, your weekend wine guy, and the head honcho of hamburgers. That's right. I love burgers. I love salmon burgers, shrimp burgers, fish burgers, uh, Herschel burgers, uh, Beyond burgers. Uh, of course, uh, I use 90-10 ground or 93-7, depending on... Um, where I'm at in life, and that way I can add bacon and cheese and all that stuff. Uh, I'm, I love the idea of the hamburger, right? Uh, we all know the story of the sandwich. I guess cats were playing cards, and he didn't want to move, leave the card game, so he asked the, the staff to bring him a piece of meat with two pieces of bread, and there the Earl of Sandwich was born. But it's not ham. It's chopped steak. How does it be called hamburger? I got the cat. This name is Chris Carosa. He is the author of Hamburger Dreams, there is a story of the hamburger, and we're going to find out all about it right here in Happy Hour Radio. Hey, Chris Carosa, author of Hamburger Dreams, welcome to Happy Hour Radio. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm super excited. Uh, I, I know that this, this when I saw this come across my desk, you wrote a book, um, and I was like, well, who doesn't want to know the story, the history of the hamburger? Let's talk about you. What is this? the idea that you wrote this book? What prompted me to write this book? Yes. Really, it was totally by accident. I was supposed to write the history of my city of birth, Buffalo, New York. And I went to the library and took out all the books they had about Buffalo, all four of them, including a newspaper from the 1800s. In that newspaper, I saw a story about how the hamburger was invented at the county fair. And <laughs> I grew up there, and I never heard that story. So when when is this? I told one of my classmates, and he says, it wasn't invented in Buffalo. It was invented here in New Haven, and I'll take you to the place that invented no it. No way. He did. Really? Really. It's called Louis Lunch. It's still there. And is it, I mean, the, the original menu, that they called it a hamburger? Uh, well, I guess so. I mean, it's a, the story, the, the thing about there's like four competing stories <laughs> all across the, the country. And almost all of the stories were told about four or five decades after the event actually occurred. Mm -hmm. So there's no, I mean, nobody was there with a, with a selfie camera to take a picture <laughs> saying, hey, look, he just invented the hamburger. You know, it doesn't work that way. You have to go back. You have to read all the newspaper articles that were written around those times and try to piece together the evidence of what really happened. Oh. So, in fact, that story, the New Haven story, wasn't true. What? I mean, it may have been true that he coincidentally invented a sandwich that was similar to the hamburger because somebody needed something fast much like what you said with the Earl of Sandwich, it was just serendipitous that happened. Yeah. But they were already selling hamburg sandwiches decades before that event. How do we know this? Because I researched newspaper articles, and I read stories about them making hamburgers, selling them on the street. I saw hamburger menus from lunch and diners wow. where they sold hamburgers. So, you know, it had been around for a while. But still, the story was popularized by the New York Times, in 1970, actually led to another story out of out of Athens, Texas, uh, from the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, no less, oh. who, who who didn't like the idea that a Yankee invented the hamburger. So he said, <laughs> "No, no, it was invented here in Texas. We have all these these steer." Well, that story 
uh, dates from 1904, which clearly if the 1900 story was too late, the 1904 <laughs> story was even later. All right. I love it. The whodunit. Pretty cool. Whodunit. Well, yeah, that's basically what it is. I mean, there's, it comes down to two stories, both from 1885, both involving county fairs, one in Wisconsin and one outside of Buffalo. The one outside in Buffalo occurred about a month before the one in Wisconsin. And so even if they both happened at the same time, the first one would have been in Buffalo. But the, the evidence that I looked at is it's kind of iffy on the, on the Wisconsin one because the way they, stole, they told the story, the earliest possible date that could have occurred would have been in 1891. Now, again, the story was originally told in the 1930s, almost a half a century later. So you don't really know exactly what was happening at then, and people's memories get all discombobulated. So that it still could have happened in 1885, but at least the version of the story that they told in the 1930s was not possible in 1885. Wow, very interesting. So you were going to public libraries or universities and checking out microfiche or what? Uh, well, actually, no. We're we're in the 21st century now, so I could use the internet. <laughs> Everything is digitized for the most part. But I did have to go to some libraries and look at some documents. But for the mo- and and also talk to historians, town historians, see their letters. Uh, it's it's really interesting. Even in the town of Hamburg, so the place and this kind of is a giveaway of how it got its name. Uh, the the place in Buffalo outside of Buffalo was the town of Hamburg. Oh. That is where the Erie County Fair occurs. And, you know, the story goes that they, they ran out of pork sausage. The Menches brothers, Frank and Charles Menches. The Menches brothers. Sausages. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and they couldn't buy any pork sausage. They couldn't buy any uh, pork from the butcher. The butcher refused to sell it to them, ostensibly because he said it's too hot outside. And refrigerators haven't been invented yet, so I can't waste the whole pig just to sell you 10 pounds. Now, he didn't really say the thing about the refrigerators. I made that up. Yeah. As a good historian do, I, you know, you have to tell the sure. story. Sure, in context. A little bit of a contemporary twist there. Right. That's, but, I love it. Know, so, so he said, yeah, you gotta, you, I, I've got ground beef for you. Here, take this. So they took the ground beef, experimented with it. They were selling sausage patties, so they already had the patty oh, idea down. Oh, interesting. So they, they made it, it. It sold. They were right outside of the grandstand. That's where their stand was. And they sold a whole bunch. People really liked it. They said, hey, this is great. What is it called? There was no name for it. They just invented it. But they saw the sign up there that said Hamburg Fair, which is what the Erie County Fair was and remains called. And he said, oh, it's a Hamburg sandwich. So that's pretty much how it got its name. A lot of people think that story is too cute to be true. (laughs) But here's what I found out. Okay. I went to an 1885 newspaper that talked about that Erie County Fair, that specific Erie County Fair. And there's a story in there about another vendor, a cheese vendor, who was selling cheese, and a, and a satisfied customer said, hey, what do you call this cheese? And he says, it's called Hamburg cheese. So that was a naming convention that was popular at that time. Right, sure, because it was the Hamburg Fair, so everything was the Hamburg cheese and the Hamburg... Uh, ice cream and the Hamburg soda pop. Uh, very interesting. Now, I'm curious, was it was it on a bun or was it on bread? And, and was meatloaf the predominant dish? Because I would think meatloaf sandwich at some point <laughs> would have been like an inspiration. So it was not on a bun. This is actually pretty interesting. Almost all the original hamburger stories do not involve buns. In fact, at Louis' lunch, even today, it's served on toast. They, they shun the bun. Mm. Uh, but the... the 
the, the stories that I read, the actual stories where it was documented in newspaper articles of the early years, talk about how they would slice, slice a bit of loaf off the bread, build a wedge into it, and then they would put the meat in the center of that wedge. So it, it was almost like oh, a yeah. you know, bulky hot dog bun sure. as opposed to what we call a hamburger bun today. Yeah, perhaps like a hoagie or something like that. Interesting. Now, uh, condiments, right? I think they probably put mustard on it if you had, were selling uh, pork patties, pork and mustard. That's a traditional condiment. Or was ketchup around too? Or what? Did ketchup come after? <laughs> yeah, ketchup was around. I think onions were around. I mean, everybody had a slightly different twist the way they made it. If you read the articles about how these vendors are making it, you have an option to put on a number of condiments. And some people were very particular about what condiments you put in it. For example, again, going back to Louis' lunch in New Haven, they, they it was it was verboten to put uh, ketchup on the really? hamburger. It just didn't happen. So uh-huh. you know, it's crazy little things like that. Well, I can imagine, uh, you know, the, the world of condiments uh, owes a lot to the hamburger, right? Because we think of of the, the fast food chains that cr- the Ray Crocs of the world, and and uh, or even the Denny's. I mean, the burger is ubiquitous. It's become part of. It might be one of the few truly American foods. If obviously it's around the world these days, and everyone knows what a hamburger is, right? Isn't Ronald McDonald oh, kind yeah. of the number one guy? I call it the second greatest invention in in, in mankind's history, next to sliced bread. <laughs> Well, no, next to the wheel, but that's another story. <laughs> but it does involve fast food. So. Oh, I love it. Speaking with Chris Carosa, who is uh, a thesis paper uh, senior student turned author in Hamburger Dreams. And what's the subtitle, The Hamburger Dreams, The the Sleuth? You, how, how classic crime, crime fighting, <laughs> let me say that again, how classic crime fighting techniques were used to solve America's greatest culinary mystery. Culinary mystery. And there it was. Uh, it's so interesting. Now, this is big news, right? Should we be celebrating? Is there a giant burger? Does, does Hamburg make the giant, the biggest hamburger in the world every year? Or are there some celebrations or programs? <laughs> no, they don't. That was that, That's funny. I mean, that I actually tell a story about that biggest hamburger, or the, the Guinness World Book of Records, yeah. biggest hamburger, was done in Chicago, in 1948, 49, I should say, on the 45th anniversary of the 1904 World's Fair, where supposedly the hamburger was invented. I mean, there was a huge publicity campaign. They made this huge hamburger. This is a franchisee. So this is before McDonald's was around. So it's a franchisee in Chicago. It's got 15 restaurants. Make this big hamburger. And he invites everybody whose name is Hamburg or Hamburger to come and have a piece of it. Oh, wow. And then he petitions the White House to make the hamburger the national sandwich as opposed to the hot dog. Right. Because the, the British royalty had just come to America, and they were served the classic American dish, the hot dog. Well, the Hamburg folks didn't like that. So they said, no, 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 we want the hamburger to be the official food. And that really, I mean, I, and I, I actually trace this back. This is the cool thing in the book. Yeah. So you, you talk a lot about fake news today and whatever that means. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, you know, the whole idea of the hamburger being invented in St. Louis was fake news, so what I did is I reverse engineered it, and I found out where the story came from, and I tell that story in the book, and it does involve this guy in Chicago. Really? 
Well, I know the World's Fair. We had the World's Fair here in uh, the the, uh, the Great uh, Seattle Alaska Pacific Exposition, uh, which is very f- similar to the World's Fair. And, of course, the Olmsted brothers are very famous Chicago architects who came out to Seattle. Uh, I can see why people want, you know, uh, isn't but McDonald's headquarters is in Illinois, I believe, too, right? It's one of those things. Um, That's right, yeah. It makes sense. Now, you have a book. Does this book include pictures? Do you have a, a, a picture of the 19 or the 1885 newspaper? paper article no i don't in fact here's the weird story about that oh it burned down it's gone (laughs) it's kind of like that so what happened is i went back i decided to write a book about 35 years later uh, about western new york and i wanted to write this story in a chapter so i went back to the library uh, to the sterling memorial library in new haven connecticut to in fact the rare books library here's what happened when i brought those books back as a senior I was hollered at by the librarian when, they, when I gave him the newspaper back. He says, how'd you get this? You're not supposed to have this. I said, well, I got it from the stacks, just like I got everything else. No, no, no. This goes in the rare books library. Huh? Okay, I'm sorry. Well, here, put it in the rare books library. So, again, 35 years later, I go back to the rare books library, find it in the card catalog, huh? which they still had. They were still using. Went to the research librarian because you can't go. You have to get permission to get anything from the rare books library. He goes there. It's not there. Uh oh. It's like it's like National Treasure. You know how there's that yeah. missing book that they have. So it's not there. He he does some research and he found out it was purged. Oh my! Who purges something from the rare books library? Exactly. After I got hollered at for taking it out, they went and purged it. Yeah. So it's not there anymore, and I can't find the original the original thing that I looked at. They didn't know where it went. I mean, obviously, they didn't burn it. I'm pretty sure. I hope. So you don't. Uh, you haven't traveled America and taken pictures of, of eating copious amounts of burgers just to do research, right? <laughs> no, I haven't. But I'll tell you what I did. I didn't realize that the Mencius brothers' family still had a restaurant in Akron, Ohio. That's where they're from. And I went to a Hall of Fame induction for. Andre Reed of the Buffalo Bills. And on the way there, there was an argument in the car about where the hamburger was invented. My daughter was arguing with one of her friends, who was also from Connecticut. So she was having this argument a generation after I had it. And the guy on the other end of the line said, oh, the Menchus Brothers, yeah, they have a restaurant right where you're at. Cool. So we went there, and I met John Menchus, who's the great-great-grandson of Charles Menchus. He had the original recipe. I love it. It's a secret, by the way. Wow. He wouldn't tell me what it was. Hey, Chris, hold on one second. We'll be right back. Hold that thought. We'll be right back on Happy Hour Radio. He's live. He's local. He's all Northwest. Lars Larson. Weekdays, noon to 3. Talk Radio 570 KVI. KVI Want to Know Weekends continue. Now back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. Oh, my. Hey, welcome back. Time for round two. Actually, it's time for a burger or two. I've got Chris Carosa, who's the man who's uh, revealed the myth, the mystery behind the origin of the Hamburg sandwich, a.k.a. Hamburger. Hey, Chris, we were talking. You were talking about the Menchie Brothers restaurant in uh, Ohio. Um, uh, continue that story. You're in the car arguing with Andre Reed's uh, uh, what, <laughs> Hall of Fame induction or something? <laughs> yeah, we were on the way to Andre Reed's Hall of Fame induction, 
And my daughter's classmate says, hey, you know, the guys you're talking about, the Menchus brothers, they have this restaurant right there where you're staying, close to where you're staying in Akron, Ohio. So we go there, and that's where I met John Menchus, the great-great-grandson of Charles Menchus, one of the brothers who invented a hamburger. He has the original recipe. He sells 50 different hamburgers in his restaurant. No way. Among which is the original recipe hamburger, which I had. There's only two pieces of the story about what went in that original recipe that we knew. This is from the original story that was told to a reporter in the 1920s. One was coffee. They had to put coffee in there because they were burning the outside of the hamburger, but the inside was still raw. So by putting coffee in there, they steamed the inside. They were able to cook the hamburger thoroughly. But it tasted lousy. So to offset the taste, they put in brown sugar. What? So those are the two ingredients that are public. And then there's other things in there, too. So like meatloaf. It was like meatloaf. Well, I mean, everybody, well, everybody makes hamburgers their own different way. Yeah. I mean, I make a hamburger like an Italian. <laughs> so I put, you know, garlic and onions uh-huh. and mint and, you know, all that stuff. But anyways, I had this hamburger. It was really good. Now, he's got, you know, Char- uh, John isn't saying that this is the best hamburger in the world. His, his tagline is, this is the hamburger by which all other hamburgers are to be judged. So, you know, yeah. So, uh. but this is actually a really good hamburger. And, you know, you can't get it anywhere else. You have to go to the restaurant. Was it on toast? No, no, it was on a bun. And I have to tell you this story. So after, you know, after I started writing about this and people became known uh, that I was writing about this, I was invited to the Erie County Fair to do a talk on it. So the first year I had just won some sort of writing award uh, from the New York Press Association for a series of stories that I did about this origin of the hamburger. So the Erie County Fair invited me to give a lecture. I mean, you don't go to a fair to hear a lecture, but that's what they told me to do. And I, and I did it in this, like, kitchen studio. So they normally cook food and give it away, and that's why people show up. So I'm there All in right. Hollisfield, and I say, hey, guys, the first thing I'm going to tell you is I'm not giving away free food. Bam, half the people left. Too <laughs> funny. Okay, fine, great. So I said the next year, okay, guys, next year I want John Menchus there to serve the hamburger while I'm doing the talk. So he came, and now it starts off with a pretty full, you know, group auditorium. (laughs) By the time we were done, it was packed. Everyone was there. And I'm thinking, wow, I must have given a a really great speech or or presentation. But no. no. What it was is they forgot to turn on the ventilator. So all that sweet smell of the sizzling hamburger wafted throughout the hall and then out the doors. So everyone could <laughs> smell this, and that aroma drove them in. Oh, about and that. And I'm thinking, holy cow, this is true, what they say about whatever, bakeries or whatever, while wow, people are just captivated by the smell. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was and, – and everyone really liked the hamburger, too. I mean, they realized it tasted a little different, and I think the, the trick that John does – the way he serves it, he serves it on a, a buttered roll. Oh. And it, just something about that kind of roll just enhances the taste. Interesting. I'm not a food expert. Right. I just know what I like, and, well. and I like that. <laughs> That's all that counts when it comes to uh, dining out. I'm a small yay by trade, and if you know what you like, that helps me make, do my job. Uh, it, the, the burger has grown. It, it um, Of course, 
it's become what there's like a thousand dollar burger out there, right? I think it was uh, foie gras and caviar and gold oh, right, flake yeah. and all that other stuff, though, which is pretty nonsense for people that have too much money. Um, but I tell you, you know, one of the standards, though, I think everybody in the world knows what a McDonald's hamburger tastes like, right? Now that's not oh, yeah. that's yeah. not the best burger. But it is consistent, and I think that is a lot of what people really enjoy about, uh, of course, that fast food franchise. And, and we all like that comfort food, and a burger truly is comfort food. Now, um, of course, the French fry—that's a different story, right? Now, how did the how did the hamburger and French fries come to be this perfect, uh, the, you know, this timeless match? Well, I think a, you have to thank McDonald's for that. Okay, that's another that's a, another book. Uh, well, let's, let's talk about. Is there a, a website to learn more about your book, Hamburger Dreams? Yes, guess what the name of the website is? It's hamburgerdreams.com. Hamburgerdreams.com. I love it. You could just learn about some of the latest things that I do. I mean, obviously, when you post this show, I'll, I'll link to it, and uh, so you can hear this all over again if you want. But uh, it's a little bit more about what I've been doing in terms of promoting the book and writing about the book and some interesting things that I found. It's not a place to go to order the book. If you want to order the book, just go to a regular bookstore or Amazon or whatever you sure. wherever you order books from. Yeah, we're familiar with that other guy, Amazon. He's uh... yeah. <laughs> Uh, what a great story! What a uh, and thank you for um, solving the mystery that was the hamburger. I think it's it makes perfect sense. It's certainly believable. And of course, uh, someone took a book out because they were worried. They that they took they purged that book because they were worried. <laughs> they yeah. wanted they wanted their own fame. Um, Chris Carosa, thanks so much for uh, sharing the story about the hamburger. Hamburger Dreams by Chris Carosa. Um, what a great book! What a great story! I appreciate your time on Happy Hour Radio. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Hey, folks, that made me hungry. Right now, it's time for something to taste. Hey, we went from burgers to brewing, uh, and not the beer brewing. I'm talking about coffee. Actually, I was in Boise, Idaho recently. Had a wonderful time uh, You know, checking out the beautiful weather, the sunshine, uh, the clean city. I didn't see any homeless people. Well, I did see two. Not that that's uh, uh, an issue out there, but um, such a lovely town. I went to a farmer's market and had a chance to meet some fantastic local, passionate people. Uh, and one of those people uh, is Joshua Cox. Joshua here is on the line uh, in Boise. Boise right now on Saturday night uh, with Woo Fire Coffee Roasters. Uh, Joshua Cox, hey, welcome to Happy Hour Radio. Thank you, Chris. Happy to join. Right on. Well, um, let's talk about you. Uh, where were you born and when did you end up in Boise? Yes. So, originally from the East Coast, Northern Virginia, and uh, moved out to Idaho in 1999. So, been about half my life wow. on the West Coast now. What was the draw? Peanuts? Love- potatoes? <laughs> <laughs> potatoes. Yes, that's what we're known for in Idaho, for the most part. <laughs> but uh, love it on the West Coast. Just absolutely beautiful in uh, Boise, Idaho. That's cool. And are you uh, single, solo? Did you go to college on the East Coast, or did you go to come here for college, or Boise? Yeah, so I went to college in Moscow, Idaho, University of Idaho. Go oh, Vandals. go Vandals. And uh, Purdue for my grad. Oh, so you must be an engineer. Uh, actually, master's in business. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's great. Yeah. So uh, you came out to Boise in '99. You've lived there for the last uh, 20 years. And did yeah. you were you a coffee drinker on the East Coast? Because when people come to the West Coast, they tend to be coffee drinkers. I mean, really coffee drinkers. Were you a coffee drinker prior? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I've always been a coffee drinker and always had a passion for it. Um, really started as a hobby with the roasting and kind of grew from there. I've been roasting for about five years now. Oh. And uh, just within the just within the past year, was it kind of more of a business, and 
my friends and family said, hey, you really should start selling this because it's really good stuff. <laughs> and it just kind of went from there. I know? see. Yeah, you've certainly asked the cognoscenti. And, of course, you had a bit Master's of Business uh, Administration or uh, what it is. But, um, you know, it's always fun to hear that people say like a winery, right? Hey, your wine's really good. You should start selling it, making it to sell it. Well, Basically, you oh, yeah. just, you need to start charging your friends and family first. <laughs> see if it, let's see if you'll buy it, and you know the guy who makes it, you'll support me. That's how I know. Um, but right. were you drinking Folgers in college? Did you have Starbucks in college in in uh, Idaho, or what, what? What were you drinking? Yeah, great question. So I I was actually drinking Starbucks. So Starbucks kind of got me into the specialty coffee industry. Right. Um. And that's kind of where it started. So I know um, a lot of their stuff is very dark, but they do have some lighter roasts as well. And that was kind of my my entry point into the industry, I would say. Yes. Uh, It's funny. I've worked in the restaurant business here in Seattle since uh, the early 80s and seeing the rise of Starbucks. I remember it was the Pike Place blend and the 80-20 blend. I mean, an 80-20 blend, that's that's kind of wild. It's just because it was just more flavorful than every other coffee. People liked it, even though it was over-roasted. But we were talking about French roast and Italian roast. And when you started roasting coffee, where did you find the beans? Did you do uh, Amazon? Are you going to support all of the Pacific Northwest companies? <laughs> yeah, so actually, uh, some importers in California is where I started. And uh, they were on the retail side, so they let you order smaller quantities. Sure. Just, as, just for hobby roasting. And uh, that's kind of where I started out. And right now, I use uh, two different importers one in, in San Francisco and another one in Minnesota. Minnesota. And I find only the, the best beans out there. So we sample a lot of different coffees. To find the best tasting stuff, and then that's what we sell to consumers. Well, it's interesting. You say you you look for the best bean, and we're going to take a little break here in just a few seconds. But um, I want to come back and, and address that question because if you're buying these beans, are you roasting them and finding what people like, or are you roasting them for what you like? So that's a great question. So I roast for what I think the consumer will like. <laughs> okay. And um, usually the the proof is in the cup. So I. <laughs> I have a sample roaster where I test out all of the different coffees, and usually if it shines on the sample roaster, it's going to shine on the production roaster. I love it. Okay, hold that thought. We're going to take a break. I speak with Joshua Cox, who is the proprietor of Woo Fire Coffee Roasters in the beautiful town of Boise, Idaho. Hey, folks, stick around. we got a lot more coming up on Happy Hour Radio. Back, Michael Savage, The Savage Nation, weeknights 9 to 11, Talk Radio 570, KVI. Now, more KVI Want to Know Weekends. Back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle. Hey, hope you're having a great Saturday night. Welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. I'm speaking with a pal in Boise, Idaho. You know, I was in Idaho back in the 80s. My college sweetheart went to high school there. Her family was there. So I got to know Idaho quite well. Of course, Sun Valley is a beautiful place. Recently went to Stanley and Redfish. Uh, I haven't skied Bogus Basin, but um, the town of Boise has everything. Clean air, beautiful water, clean water, um, clean streets, low traffic, and uh, good food, and really nice people. I don't get a Seattle freeze. I mean, Seattle, we're all like, okay, you mind your own business, that's fine. But in Boise, 
people were actually um, pretty happy, even with the masks on. And I had a chance to meet Joshua Cox uh, and his partner. We're at a Little Farmer's Market. Uh, what was the name of that farmer's market? Uh, it's the Capital City Market. They're usually downtown, but they have migrated to the 34th Street uh, just with the COVID situation. So they're normally downtown Boise. Okay. And uh, th- that was really fun because we're talking about this is basically a farmer's market. Now, I didn't. I saw some produce. I saw some some cool ranchers that had jerky. I had. Uh, we had some cool breweries that had beers. Some root beers. Some Schwitzels, I think. Uh, kind of the kombuchas, yeah. the, the beverages. It was really interesting to see how many people were into beverages there. Um, did you kind of get a bug? Did you see people being successful in Boise with their beverage ideas? Or tell me how you got so uh, enamored with the idea of being an entrepreneur of coffee. Yeah, so I did. Um, you know, the, the beverage scene here is really big right now, like you said, Chris, and um, not just coffee, but breweries as well, and um, a lot of new uh, beverages coming on the scene, and so that definitely did play a role. Uh, cold brew coffee is also really big, and that's trending uh, really across the country right now, and we don't currently sell cold brew, but that is on my, on my list of things to, to get into. Uh, ultimately, I would like to bottle and sell uh, the cold brew, which I know a lot of people love because it's, it's reduced to city compared to hot brew coffee. Right. Good idea. All right. So let's talk about you. You've, uh, you. You were starting to roast beans. What did you use as a roaster? Did you use a frying pan or did you actually make an investment and in, uh, get one of those rotund roasters that I see in uh, all, the, all the videos of uh, artisan coffee producers? Oh, yeah. Great question. So I started with an electric roaster, uh, just a hot air roaster. So basically it recirculates the air and it could do about half a pound at a time. So not very much, Wow! Uh, but enough to kind of sample for yourself for personal use. Now, did you and set, did, did it have a uh, dial one to 10 and you said like toast or what? How do you, how do you figure much, that out? Yeah. yeah, it did have a dial one to 10 in manual mode, but if you connect it to a computer, you have a lot more modulation of the temperature and the fan really? and all that stuff. Wow. So. Okay, yeah, that, and that well, tell me this. Yes, I, I mean I like that part because I mean that's me being the sommelier who loves to uh, you know get down to the dirt and terroir. But uh, I'm curious: yeah. are all beans at the same um, maturity level or greenness? Right, because beans are green before you roast them to turn them light brown or dark or whatever. But I'm curious: does yeah. everybody in the world make the same green bean? I mean, obviously they're different sites and things, but is the bean the same? Are they all similar? They are not. So really depends on the region that, that you're sourcing from. So Africans tend to be very exotic. You're going to get a lot of uh, very fruit-forward coffees from, from Africa. I would say South America, Central America are going to be much more mellow uh, in general. And um, good for espresso because generally with espresso, you want a softer coffee. You don't want that to be as pungent necessarily. So um, a lot of times they'll use that for for espresso-type blend. Well, I get that part. So let's, um, let's stop right there and talk about that. When you think about espresso, we're already using a very compact or a very um, a very fine, uh, gr- what is it, uh, what do you call it, grind. Fine a fine grind, yeah. yeah. And so you're going to have a lot more expression through that versus big, chunky grains, right? Like fold, That's why Folgers is lighter style because it's, it's the, the grains are, are bigger. They don't quite let loose as much color and flavor. Is that correct? Yes, great point. So the finer that you grind, the more your surface area. So the more the water is exposed to the surface of that coffee, so you're going to get more extraction with the finer grind than if you were to grind with a, a more coarse 
grind. And thusly, you would like a, a, a coffee that had less acidity because you're going to basically get all the flavor out of it. And if you get all the flavor of a high acid coffee, you're going to have a lot of acidity, right? Exactly, yes. Boom, okay. shakalaka. I love it. So how many times does it take for you to figure out if you like a bean from a certain area and how many, I mean, how many roasts? How many half pounds were you doing in your air popper or <laughs> air roaster? Oh, I did hundreds of, of samples just when I was starting out. And, um, yeah, you just kind of find out what you like just by trial and error. Um, but I will say I do like a lot of the Africans because they're very interesting coffees. Um, I'm actually looking at sourcing the Yemen coffee here coming up here in the near future. Wow. And that is a very special coffee. Well, yes, because the sure place is know. war-torn, man. I mean, I'm surprised they're still growing yeah. stuff out in Yemen with all that bloodshed. I know. I'm shocked that they're even exporting beans at this point. But this particular coffee is, is very special, and I'm pretty excited to, to get it in and start selling it. But, um, yes, yeah, very interesting coffee for sure. So uh, when we think of the coffee regions, we're t- basically talking between, is it 10 and 25 degrees latitude? Yeah, around that, uh, plus or minus the equator. Yeah, so zero, okay, zero to twenty-five. Climate. Yeah, so the subtropic yeah. region, which is is a wonderful place if you're living there without a hurricane. Um, how many coffees right. does Woo Fire, and that's W U F Y R E Coffee Roasters, Woo Fire Coffee Roasters? How many coffees do you have in your portfolio? Yeah, so right now we have a Costa Rica uh, natural process, uh, which is a very fruit forward coffee, uh, and we've also got an Ethiopia. Um, honey process, which is kind of a hybrid between a natural process and a wash process coffee. And I'm actually almost out of that Ethiopian. It's been a hit. Um, a lot of people like it. It's a very delicate coffee, but a lot of floral notes in, in that coffee. Um, I did have a Kenya as well, Kenya wash. That just sold out. That one did very well dark. Um, so you'll find certain coffees do well dark. Others you want to keep them light because they just don't, don't hold up as well on the darker side of the spectrum. Sure. I'm curious now. When you think about each each particular uh, particular varietal, or what do we call it? Expression? Is it a bean? A, a regional bean? Uh, tell me how you describe coffee. Is this just a Kenyan coffee versus an Ethiopian? Yeah. Yeah. So you would start with the country, okay. and then um, you would you would look at the elevation that's grown at. All right. Uh, typically, the higher the elevation, the more flavor that's packed onto that bean because the coffee plant has to work harder at the higher elevations to pack on those nutrients. So typically... Because of poor, more poor soils, really, right? Yeah, that too. Okay. Yeah. So typically there's there's more flavor in the, the higher elevation beans for the most part. Right. Now, you also talked about several different processes, a natural process, a hybrid process, and a full wash process. Tell me, basically, a the coffee bean is the seed of a basically coffee cherry. It looks red on the outside, you know, we've seen it, and then basically you have to get that flesh off the bean, and there's several ways to do that. Tell me about that. Yeah. Yeah, so the wash process is probably the most processed of the of the different types. So basically they, they pulp the bean, they wash it, and then they dry it from there. So basically it has minimal contact with the coffee cherry, whereas the other end of the spectrum is natural process, where they leave the cherry husk on the seed and they dry it on raised beds. And because of the way they process that, the coffee cherry actually imparts a lot of flavors to the coffee seed in the process. Oh. And like fermentation maybe, seed. huh? Right? Exactly, yes. Yes, okay. you get a lot of fermentation as it's, it's just drying in the sun. And so you can get those wine notes. You can get a lot of those really interesting uh, fermented notes 
in in right. natural processed coffee, and it can even get over ferment. So it's it's kind of a fine line that you walk with the natural <laughs> processed coffee because it, it can be taken too far. So you really just kind of have to test them to see uh, what's good and what's not good. You know. All right. I'm curious now. You know, depending on which country you're from or where you're sourcing your beans, um, are there indigenous animals, like say primates or monkeys, that might, you know, perhaps get a little buzzed on those fermenting dry, uh, air dried beans or cherries, or do they do they get all buzzed and whacked out when they're eating those things? Do you see any of that? Are you aware? I'm sure they. I'm sure they do. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of uh, Kopi Luwak coffee. That's the one where they eat the bean and uh, eject it at some point. Yes, exactly. Yes. So I haven't tried that personally, but uh, yeah, I think it's an interesting uh, flavor. <laughs> I guess you got to separate the bean from the so-called chaff, if you will. You don't want to just grab yes, a couple nugs exactly. and put it in your uh, grinder. Um, so have you uh, have you had any certification in coffee roasting or coffee uh, cupping? Yes. So I ah. uh, trained at Booth Coffee in San Francisco, and. Uh, I have uh, taken professional roasting training in addition to uh, just learning myself. Um, and we sourced a uh, Giessen roaster from the Netherlands, custom-built roaster, um, and had that shipped across the ocean for our, for our roasting process. And the reason we picked that roaster is because it gives you the most control over airflow, uh, burner temperature, and all of that. And really fantastic how you can profile a coffee and the the different nuances you can pull out of the coffee in the process. You can really dial it in then, huh? That's so fun. Oh, yeah. Hey, we're going to take another little break. I'm going to refill my, (laughs) quote, coffee cup with some wine (laughs) and come back and speak with uh, Woo Fire Coffee Roaster, Joshua Cox in Boise, Idaho. Stick around, folks. Be right back on Happy Hour Radio. Tune it in and turn it up. Cruise home with Kirby. The Kirby Wilbur Show, live and local. Weekdays, 3 to 6 p.m. KVI. KVI Want to Know Weekends continue. Now, back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle. Hey, welcome back. Time for our fourth and final segment. Speaking with a gentleman out of Boise, Idaho. Uh, an East Coaster who came out for the potatoes, the sunshine, and a chance to make it big uh, with Woo Fire Coffee. He's a, a roaster. He's got a, a zone plant. Um, Joshua Cox, how many pounds of coffee are you roasting a week? Yeah, so I have a, a six-kilo machine, so it's a small-batch roaster. So I can do approximately 30, uh, 13 pounds at a time. But I will say... Um, I do try not to max it out because th- that is part of the craft and the process. Right. Is being able to use a small batch, and the small batch really does derive a higher quality result than you're going to get with a, a really large roaster, you know, with a, the mass production. So. Oh, I, I know who you're talking about. <laughs> right, right. I've had a chance to actually uh, experience a fe- wonderful day cupping with the uh, master roasters over at Starbucks. Uh, it was a, quite an enlightening experience. Now, do you actually cup? Um, well, tell me about the process. You get a bean that you think you like. You try 10 different roasts. You find one you like, and then what do you do? Yeah, so I, I find the one that I like, and I order that. And then when that lands at my roastery, I start profiling that. And so I'll do – I have a whole process where I find the optimal charge temp of the bean. 
And that's step one. Uh, after I find the optimal charge temp, uh, whether that's hotter or cooler, then I'll look at the optimal profile for how long should I take this bean. And typically, um, there's multiple cracks in the process of roasting. First crack is uh, where the bean um, first cracks. You actually hear the audible pop of the beans mm -hmm. in, the, in the roaster. And typically, I won't drop any bean until it's reached at least first crack because you don't want to underdevelop bean. If it's underdeveloped, you're going to get a lot of those sour notes out of the coffee. So you yeah. don't want to take it too light. And then beyond first crack, there's another crack called second crack. And second crack <laughs> Very logical. where, yes, that's where it gets really dark. So typically, if you want an espresso, oftentimes you might take it to a second crack. Uh, but it, the, it does get very dark uh, the further that you go beyond second crack, I will say. All right, so that's it? One, there's either one, one crack or two? <laughs> yes yeah so so two cracks is is pretty dark i would say if, you, if you've got a very fruit forward coffee typically you want to you want to keep that on the lighter side because sure the darker that you go you're going to lose, lose yeah. a lot of those aromatics flavor flow you know anthocyanins the phenols that all come with coffee and fruits and vegetables and things uh obviously exactly. when you grow it if you're sitting on the valley floor you get too much heat where if you're up up in an altitude you've got a little diurnal shift which keeps it cool helps the the plants respirate uh, moderate yeah. their their cycles, um, and you used a word talking about a charge. Was that the word you used? Yes, charge temp. So charge temp um, can vary, you know, anywhere from three seventy five to four twenty five. Just really depends on um, on the density of the bean. So oh, every bean that I get in, I measure the moisture content, right? And I measure the density. Do you do that at home or in your office, or do you send it out? I do that in my roastery. So oh. um, every bean that I get, even the samples that I get, I'll measure the moisture content and the density because those are indicators of the amount of flavor that's packed into the bean. Sure. Typically, the higher the density, you're going to have a lot more flavor. Makes sense. Beans. So that's definitely something that I look for. I like it. Um, so let's talk about how many how many uh, coffees are you currently purveying, and how what's a website that people can give it, give you a chance to or give them a chance to try it? Yeah, so the website is woofire.com, and uh, we do have the a la carte, so you can you can buy just each bag separately, or uh, we do a subscription as well, and that's a ten percent discount to the to the normal price. Uh, so we've got the Ethiopian, that's almost out of stock, and uh, I've got the Costa Rican. Uh, plenty of that left in stock. Like I said, I am sourcing some Yemen coffee um, here in the near future, and also uh, most likely a Sumatran as well. Sumatran uh -huh. uh, typically has uh, a lot of cedar notes, uh, sandalwood, mm. uh, very interesting flavors because mm -hmm. of the process. And uh, yeah, excited about that coffee as well. That's cool. I mean, I, Sumatra was one of the things that I learned, you know, years ago in, in Starbucks because that, you know, that was a coffee place. You wanted to go to coffee. They were the people who knew most about coffee. Uh, I've always enjoyed some of that spicy sandalwood, uh, cedary notes, the earthy wood tones that come from Sumatra, and I, I can almost smell it and taste it because I know that a friend of mine at the time didn't like Sumatra, so I get it. Um, oh, yeah. This is super cool. So Ethiopian, Kenya, Costa Rican, Yemen, and Sumatra, you are sourcing beans from all over the world. Uh, Joshua Cox yeah. with Woo Fire Coffee Roasters. That's that's W-U-F-Y-R-E, woofire.com. That's it, right? Yes, 
Hey, buddy. Uh, it was so it was a pleasure to meet you. I really enjoyed uh, talking with you and learning about the process a little more. It's always nice to hear from uh, a startup that's uh, done the mistakes and doesn't have the financial backing that uh, you know some of those big mega coffee roasters we have in our backyard in Seattle do. But Joshua Cox with Blue oh, Fire yeah. Coffee Roasters, thanks so much for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. Thank you so much. Right on. Hey, folks, check it out. If you want to uh, support a local guy or a little guy, you've got a chance with WooFire.com. Some great coffee and a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, uh, people are out driving out. Um, Life's always better with a designated driver. Cheers.